Welcome back to the program. We know that there are powerful demographic trends taking place in the U.S., that the economic divide in America is widening at an almost geometric pace, that certain groups repeatedly, in spite of powerful evidence to the contrary, continue to vote against their own economic self-interest. We've seen and continue to see examples of the ways in which big data and the vast amounts of individual information available today make it easier to define the electorate. Back in 1964, journalist Eugene Burdick first looked at the issue in a seminal novel entitled The 480, a story where primitive computers could slice and dice the electorate to give one candidate an electoral advantage. Today, that's no longer fiction. My guest, Tony Fairfax, has been looking at these trends for decades, and he's come to some interesting new conclusions. Tony Fairfax is a demographic consultant and president and CEO of Census Channel, LLC, For over 20 years, he's worked as a demographic data and mapping consultant specializing in redistricting. He personally developed hundreds of redistricting plans covering 22 different states. It is my pleasure to welcome Tony Fairfax here to talk about the presidential trend. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here, Jeff. Good to have you here. I want to start by talking about kind of that fundamental idea that is part of what you talk about in the presidential trend, which is that the popular vote for the Democratic candidate for president over the past 30 years has increased in almost a predictable manner, with the exception of 1976, but that if we look at that line, it is very geometric and very predictable. Talk about that first. Yes. You know, the the trend occurred um, for almost 30 years. It, it occurred from 1972 to 2000, with the exception of 76, as you said. So if you looked at it on a graph, you could draw a straight line from 72 to 2000. The trend ended in 2000. Uh, but during this same period of time, 72 to 2000, excluding 1976, the Republican candidate's popular vote and the independent candidate's popular vote fluctuated. Like it should. It should fluctuate from presidential election to presidential election. Um, when you think about it, there are different issues that come up with each presidential election. Uh, there are different candidates and opponents. Uh, there are different uh, global and U.S. economic conditions, which actually play favor for one candidate to another. Uh, and last but not least, there were different voter turnout percentages for each of these elections. And so you had the voter turnout percentage fluctuating from 72 to 2000, excluding 76, but yet you had the Democratic popular vote increase in a straight line. It's, it's pretty astounding. And talk about what happens if you look at that number from the year 2000 through 2012. What happened was, like I said, the trend ended, and it ended because there was an increase uh, in the voting age population. And I looked at the voting age population um, for uh, 30 or 40 years from 72 on, and it was the only time between 2000 and 2004, a little bit like 2008, a little bit of 2008, uh, whereby there was an extraordinary increase in voting age population, um, an increase in registered voters, and an increase in turnout. And so if you looked at uh, other elections, you had an increase in registered voters, but not an increase in voting age population. Or you had an increase in turnout, but not an increase in registration and voting age population. It was the only time between 2000 and 2004 
where you had an increase in all three, signifying to me that you had an increase, an extraordinary increase in voting age population 2000, 2004. So that caused the trend to bend up. Given that, given that the trend seemingly stopped in 2000 and that other factors entered into the equation, as you've detailed, talk about the value of understanding this 30-year trend from 1972 to 2000. What relevance does it have, given that the trend starts to break down in 2000? Well, let me, I guess, go back and and explain the, the theory of what I think occurred in 72. Uh, you know, the theory I put forth uh, in the in the book is uh, that our electorate, our voting electorate, fractured into two pieces. Um, and of course, you know, voting is not a physical thing, but that's the analogy that you actually have to look at to understand what went on. It was actually a shifting over voters away from the Democratic Party. But if you look at it as a fracturing of, of two electorates um, or into two electorates, you had one side that was the Democratic electorate that I call, and the other side, that's the non-democratic electorate, everyone else. And the trend exists because you essentially had Democratic voters voting for the Democratic candidate, and repeatedly, over and over. And that's what gets you this linear trend. Just one type of people, one group of people, for the most part, voting for the same candidate. In the other electorate, you get a different and unique phenomenon, another extremely unique phenomenon in the non-Democratic electorate that sort of validates the theory I'm putting forth. But to get to uh, um, 2000, what occurred after 2000, the linear trend ended, but I still believe that the fracturing still occurs. So that means that I still believe that we have a fractured electorate, in essence, still fractured. And I think that the polarization that's going on uh, actually bodes for that fracturing to continue on. It's interesting, though, because if if you dig in deeper, the fracturing starts to occur within the various groups that fractured back in 1972. You start to look at Nixon's Southern strategy. I mean, actually, you can go back even to the Civil Rights Act and start to look at the way that impacted the fracturing of the electorate. And now we're seeing fault lines within those groups. It's really taken almost another 20-plus years to start to see the fracturing within those groups that fractured back in around 72. Exactly. I think you're you're right on. It is amazing, almost a a repeat of what happened, I guess, 50 years ago. Um, like what you said, that during the 60s, there were, you know, some people call the 60s the, the turbulent 60s, and there were these issues that popped up that that really never popped up before. For example, there was a sexual revolution going on. There was a women's liberation movement. There was this recreational drug use occurring. And then you had the war in Vietnam, which was just unsettling to to us as a country. Uh, And then you had the Civil Rights Act, three Civil Rights Acts that that occurred uh, one after another in a relatively short period of time. And because of those, the the occurrence of what was going on in the country and those three civil rights acts, there was a group of voters that peeled away from the Democratic, the voting for the Democratic candidate for president in 1968. It started in 1968. It ended in 72. And so those voters just peeled off away from the Democratic candidate 
um, leaving, in essence, the core group of voters there, uh, essentially voting for the Democratic candidates. There were some other voters swinging back and forth. But in essence, it left the core. But the, everyone else peeled off. Um, but they peeled off because of these, these issues that were going on. And we see similar things or similar issues, you know, rising to the top right now. And you kind of wonder if that there's going to be something uh, occurring now very similarly. The other thing that we have seen is the increase, obviously, in in black and minority voters and the way that that is exacerbating the trend right now. Definitely. You see that currently um, you see an increase in um, um, Latino voters and an increase in, in Asian voters toward the, uh, the Democratic candidates. Um, African-American voters have been repeatedly, I think, over the last 30 years, um, voted for the Democratic candidates. But recently, you now see an increase in Asian and, and Latino voters. But here's the, the thing that really is astounding. If you look at the trend you know, over 30 or 40 years, and the book goes through looking at exit polls, there is a trend of every racial group, of not just uh, you know, African-American voters or Latino voters or um, Asian voters, not this, not just those voters. Every voters, even the, the white voters, are trending for the Democratic candidate if you look at a 30- or 40-year trend, which doesn't bode well for those that I call in the non-Democratic electorate. It's interesting, though, that those numbers, those trends, certainly hold up when you look at the national electorate. But when you break it down on a state-by-state basis, it somehow changes. Talk about that. Well, one of the things I I looked at um, was, did this trend exist at the state level? And come to find out, it it, it does exist at the state level. It doesn't necessarily exist in all the states, but it exists in certain states. Certain states actually mirror uh, the national trend, this national presidential trend. Uh, trend that I that I found uh, states, including Florida in uh, Virginia, particularly, actually mirror the the trend. Ohio is very uh, much up there, but you can look at actually how this trend actually uh, is reflected all the way down uh, to even the county. I looked at one county, the county I live in, Hampton, Virginia, and looked at that, and you can actually see that the presidential trend actually exists. Uh, in the county, it's an independent city of Hampton, and, and I look at this, the presidential trend again. This other phenomenon that that I uh, uh, uncovered in the non-democratic electorate as well. So the, the trend actually exists at each of these different levels. The the only thing is when you go down to the smaller levels, you have different uh, influences on the vote. Uh, you have different people running in different elections, local elections, which may impact or influence the vote differently than nationally. And so you may have uh, the trend being lost as you move down too low of a level. The the other part of it is that you have a different voter mix, a different voter turnout in non-presidential election years. That That's part of it. The other part of it is that the trend, I mean, Virginia is a good example, which is becoming more and more purple, that, that the right. trend seems to be happening more slowly. Yes, if, you, if you're talking about Virginia, definitely um, mirroring the national level, uh, 
first you mentioned uh, different elections. Each of these uh, elections carries a different demographic profile, if you will, that turns out. And so you have the presidential election. If you think about it, it's the largest election. It could be actually treated like the whole voting electorate for the most part. But then as you move further and further down from the state level and down the congressional, down to counties, you have different subsets. And so each one of these subsets actually have uh, a different makeup, a different voting electorate on its own self. And that's why the trend may not manifest itself in these different electorates. That being said, uh, I do think that the presidential level, the national level, uh, is the canary in the coal mine, meaning that it's just a matter of time before these national uh, rather, these lower levels will mimic or mirror the same thing that's going on nationally. Of course, the other factor that enters into that equation is turnout and, and the degree to which Democrats continue to be effective in getting their voters to turn out. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I put a little cautionary uh, <laughs> a sentence or two in there for Democrats to say, you know, just because you had this trend and you can see that parts of this trend may continue even up to today, doesn't mean that you didn't need your extraordinary um, registration and GOTV effort. In fact, the trend might have occurred because of that, because they had these actual unique uh, apparatus to actually increase registration and increase turnout. That might have maximized their vote, almost making the vote, uh, the Democratic popular vote, a, a ceiling, meaning they, they maximize the number of votes that they could acquire by these unique, unique voter registration and, and GOTV efforts that they actually perform. So it, it would be uh, probably a mistake to actually move away from that because you don't know what will occur if you, if you shy away from using those tools. Right. It's interesting when you look at the trends, even in terms of Republican get-out-to-vote efforts, that they don't have as much to maximize because their core voters tend to have a stronger habit of voting to begin with. So even a strong GOTV effort that gets out more of their votes doesn't proportionately increase their voter percentage. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I show in the book is that when this faction occurred, it, it left uh, this non-democratic electorate on the other side, if you will. That consisted of independent votes and Republican votes. So these independent votes were not Republican. They were, they were uh, essentially non-democrats. And so the core Republican votes that you're speaking of, they're maximized. And so the only way that the Republicans can actually match now the Democrats in the size of the electorate is actually attract those independent votes that are inside the non-democratic electorate. That's the only way they can actually match and pair that. And I think you see that probably uh, in what's, what we have today in modern-day Tea Party. I think that's one of the reasons to reach out to those individuals to actually maximize uh, that Republican vote far beyond uh, the, the core Republican votes that's out there. How do we explain 2000 in the context of this trend? Because when we look at the popular vote totals, essentially we see a tie. What was the problem? Well, here's the, the, the interesting thing, is that you could have predicted uh, the 92 
the 96 and the, and the 2000 popular vote for the Democratic candidate in 1988 with an accuracy of 99% or better. So that means that, you know, Bill Clinton could, and Al Gore could have known what popular vote they're going to have back in 1988. That's how straight this trend line was. And so from one, uh, on one hand, rather, uh, there's not too much that the Democratic candidate could have done. Now, that did not mean that you, you could change out Democratic candidates and it wouldn't be an effect effect uh, that you would have on the popular vote. What that means is, is that it may not have been that much effect on the Democratic vote, but it probably was an effect on the other candidates' votes. I think that what, what occurred is that depending upon which candidate, could have affected who, uh, for example, the votes that Bob Dole got, for example, the votes that George Bush got, if you had different candidates. And so, um, uh, you know, the Democratic popular vote was almost frozen on this line, but that didn't mean that the Democratic candidate didn't impact how independents favored or how independents turned out and how Republican voters turned out uh, for their candidates as well. I mean, part of it is that when we look at 92 and 96, we see the impact really in 92 even more so of a third party of an independent candidate. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Ross Perot. Um, and, and one of the things that I, that I found out in the book, if you look at uh, their three elections, if you look at 1948, 1968, and 1992, uh, they constitute what I call baseline trends. And essentially, you have these trends where you have a major third-party candidate soak up all the votes, all the independent votes out there, and leave in essence, the core voters for the two major parties. Leave the voters for the Democratic Party and leave the votes uh, for the, excuse me, for the uh, uh, independent party, uh, Republican Party, a uh, Republican candidate. And so uh, when you do that, you can draw a straight line from 1948, 1968, and 1992. Uh, there was a little dip and shift in 72, but essentially you can draw a straight line between those three elections for the Democratic candidate, for the Republican candidate and for the independent candidates, showing that something is going on when you actually can connect those three lines, uh, those three elections in a straight line. Um, and so these are baseline elections. These are, those were baseline trends that, that uh, revealed themselves. What does all of this tell us about where we are relative to 2014, 2016? Where are we headed? Well, what happened was, let's go back to 1972, when this fracturing occurred, you had the Democratic electorate much smaller than what I call the non-Democratic electorate, everyone else. However, the Democratic electorate was and is growing faster than the non-Democratic electorate, to the point that it was small in 72, but now the Democratic electorate, if, if this was a football game, I would say that the Democratic electorate is an extra point ahead of the non-democratic electorate. So I give an advantage to the Democrat. Now, going forward, every election, you're going to have this advantage increase over and over and over, unless there's some, you know, a different realignment or unless 
the non-democratic candidates pull votes away from the democratic candidates. And so the advantage now is to democratic candidates. But when we get down to the congressional level and we look at redistricting, the kind of work that you're involved in, we see an interesting and different set of results. Exactly. Uh, the drawing of lines uh, actually proves to a certain extent um, you know, what I'm espousing in, in, in the book, which is there are these core voters that repeatedly vote, and they exist in the Democratic uh, electorate, and they exist in the Republican, uh, on the Republican side. And the way many individuals draw nowadays is they put these core voters inside these districts. And so they know with a reasonable expectation that this is a Democratic district or this is a Republican district uh, or this is a swing district. And so they can tell. And that sort of validates that these core voters exist out there. And so by doing so, though, uh, the, the presidential term that manifests itself at this national level is it, sort of skewed because you can cut up these pieces into these electorates that, that actually favor one side or the other. You can't do that with a national electorate. It's just there. It's the entire electorate. But you can with, with redistricting. Except that one of the other things that redistricting does is it helps both parties, really, and independents arguably as well, a potential independent candidate, break down and work the electorate and understand where to focus effort and resources in a much clearer way. The work has already been done. Exactly. Uh, yeah, at the national level, I think we, you know, the presidential level, you break it down into maybe uh, a handful of states, and and that's where people target. Uh, at the congressional level, uh, it, it's it's better. It's not as it's not as good as as maybe it should, um, because of the fact that you do have these districts that are one side or the other. But there are many more of those districts that you're right. They can focus in on and actually uh, target those voters in there to, to actually uh, increase the vote one way or the other. Um, so you're right. At the congressional level, at least there's many more districts versus many more states that are. Is all, is, all, is all of this simply aiding and abetting the divisiveness that we see in the country now? And really it becomes in some ways as we talk about this and as you look at it, a kind of self-perpetuating problem in terms of the way we are slicing and dicing and divided up, dividing up the electorate. I think that it does. Um, continue the fracturing that exists. The fracturing at the congressional level is different than the presidential level. But nonetheless, we're still somewhat fracturing up the electorate into these districts that are self-fulfilling prophecies, so self-fulfilling actually electorate. And so uh, on that hand, I, I do, I completely agree that uh, uh, some process has to occur uh, to actually make these districts a little fairer. Now, we have to be careful that we don't disenfranchise people when, you, when we do this. There are some districts that are drawn uh, to make sure that you have fair election of the population inside. And so we have to do something to, to, to make this fair without actually disenfranchising different population groups inside the districts. Of course, in most states, the redistricting, is, as you know better than most of us, has become such a politically charged process. Uh, definitely. It, it, uh, in many of the states, it's, it's done by the legislature. And uh, many people may not 
realize that the district is actually a law. I mean, it becomes law, that district that's created. And so just like any law, you're going to have the horse trading that occurs just like you have with many other laws. And so you have the polarization and the horse trading that occurs that, that for that particular district or that district plan, just like you would have uh, over any particular law that, that someone's putting forth. And finally, to what extent is big data and our ability to really process huge amounts of information about the electorate, to what extent are you seeing that have an impact on some of the things we're talking about? Well, the real big change with data and technology occurred in the 1990 redistricting cycle. There was a real major shift and, and what occurred was a convolution of forces, really, that happened in that, re- in, in that redistricting cycle. You know, computer power came up to the, the forefront. You had something called GIF, uh, Geographic Information, that really popped uh, up a software that enabled you to draw districts. Uh, and then you had this data, the census data, down to the block level. And you put them all together, you now had the ability to actually move one block, like a city block, from one district to the next, uh, which really never occurred. And, and from now on, from that point on, rather, you now have the ability to actually draw somewhat these irregularly looking shaped districts, uh, some uh, worthy of that shape and some not worthy of the shape. Uh, but you have the ability now to actually take this data in addition to voting data uh, and maybe other data that you actually include and actually draw districts according to those uh, different data sets that you have available. So it's, it has literally changed with, with technology uh, redistricting has changed. Tony Fairfax, his book is The Presidential Trend. It's just out in paperback. Tony, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, I enjoyed it. Enjoyed your questions. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 